0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6a. If you don't have a Bible, you can use your phone, you can find the text in the order of worship. I say to you, hear the Word of God. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray this morning that you would also give faith where there is no faith. I pray that you would give spiritual life where there is no life. I pray that you would give encouragement where people are discouraged. I pray uh, for myself. Pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm gonna begin this morning. We're, we're in this, the middle of this series about Jesus' healings. And today's an interesting text, because it's, it's the one spot where he, he for some reason, is, is unable to do healings. And, and there's something even bigger, though, I think, that's behind that. And I'll start by asking you this question. Do you ever feel misunderstood? Or I, well, I can tell you this. If, if I asked if you you raise your hand and you, I said, are you married? Then I could say, yes, you felt misunderstood, correct? I mean, we all feel that. Or have you ever felt pigeonholed? Like, like you feel like, man, someone views me in a way that just isn't co- correct, right? And we do that to other people too, right, if we're, we're honest, right? I often try to remind myself when I'm stuck in the left lane behind some grandmother, that she's not an evil person who's trying to ruin my day and keep me from my pointed rounds. But in fact, she's probably someone's sweet grandma who's, who's taking the, her, her grandchildren things and she's a very loving person, right? But I want a pigeonhole, right? Because that's just the nature of the way we do things. For me, when one of the more fun things is often... It doesn't happen as much anymore because of social media, but a few years ago when people who I served with in the army we'd bump into each other and they'd say, what are you doing now? And I'd say, I'm a preacher. And every single one of them would use the word bull with an expletive behind it because they didn't believe it, because they had one view of me. And they almost couldn't understand, how could someone who did this become a preacher? So we all feel misunderstood. Maybe at work, right, you had to make a hard decision and you're viewed as the person who's, who's the jerk or something. It happens all the time. Now, no one in in history, maybe, has felt more misunderstood and pigeonholed than Jesus himself. That's sort of what we're going to look at this morning, is Jesus goes back to his hometown. Now, in some sense, it's understandable. When Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and Nazareth was a small place, and when he left, he was a single guy who was a carpenter, as far as everyone knew. And when he came back, he was a famous teacher, and there were at least 70 or 80 people following behind him. And so you can imagine people going, whoa, 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 what's going on here? So as we look at the text today, we're basically going to look at three things that sort of come up as Jesus goes home uh, for a while. And so the first question is basically the, the question of the crowd. The crowd begin, asks at least five questions of Jesus. We also see in this text a scandal of the gospel, that word offense that you say in there where it says it took offense at him. That's the word scandal, scandalized and then finally the surprise of the savior there's only two places in the whole bible where jesus is surprised or jesus marvels right one is at the faith of the centurion and one is here so if it's a if it's a unique event it probably bears some looking at and so while this isn't a healing passage it's almost an anti-healing passage and it's going to tell us i think something about our own role in being healed so Let's consider first the questions of the crowd. Look at verses one and two. It says, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hand? So the first thing he says, is he went away from there. Where is there? Well, if you remember, he has just healed um, Jairus' daughter. In fact, he has, he has raised her from the dead. And, in, and he has healed a woman who has been sick uh, with a hemorrhage for 12 years. And so you could say he has, he's had a pretty good week. He's, he's coming off a high, right? He's had a bunch of so, some wins, and now he's going to go home. And as soon as he gets home, it's sort of like, wah, wah, right? He, it, it does, he doesn't get the reception you would imagine, You see, it says that he goes home, and he says he came to his hometown, as his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach, and many who heard him were astonished. Right? That makes sense. When you begin to look at Nazareth, Nazareth was, was tiny. Nazareth was so small, right? How small was it? Nazareth was so small, outside of the New Testament, only one writer ever even mentions it as existing, a guy named Julius Africanus. It probably had, historians estimate, less than 500 people there. And so when Jesus grew up in Nazareth, people probably would have known him. And we know that he was a carpenter. And by the way, a carpenter in those days, we tend to think of carpenters as being like woodworkers. There's not a lot of wood in, the, in Palestine. And so it could also mean wo- uh, someone who works with wood or a stonemason or just simply a handyman. So Jesus probably as he was growing up would have worked for a lot of people here. And so when he came back with his retinue of followers and he began to teach in the synagogue, you can imagine people wondering what's going on. Because Jesus didn't have any formal education. He didn't follow a famous rabbi. He came, as far as they knew, he left town and he came back and suddenly he was filled with wisdom and he was filled with all of these things. And they asked questions, right? They begin to ask, Notice what they say. It says they ask, "Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands?" So notice the questions asked. Basically, are where, what, and how. Where where did he get these these things? What is the wisdom, and and how is he doing these mighty works? Now they're asking. Interestingly enough, it's going to become important. They're asking the same questions that the religious leaders ask earlier in Mark. The big question about Jesus they're asking here is, is where is he getting the power to do all these things, or, or is, is it some kind of magic, or is it from God, or is it from Satan, right? That's what they're, they're, the, what's driving them are these questions of where, what, and how. Now, where do they miss the point? The, what's interesting is they don't even refer to him by name. They say, where does this man get these things? What they're missing here is the who question. You see, they're, they're sort of, we're going to find out these people are pretty skeptical of Jesus, and they're asking, you know, where did he get this? How, does it, how is he doing these mighty works? And there's two kinds of skeptics in the world. There's skeptics who, who ask questions in order to find the truth, and skeptics who ask questions in order to avoid the truth. Those kind of skeptics, I remember R.C. Sproul used to call them academic parasites. He used to rant about them in class all the time. That they're just asking questions in order to avoid the truth. But if you begin to ask questions to, to actually pursue the truth, there's at least one more question that they need to ask, and it's not where, what, or how, but it's who. Who is this? Who is this that is doing such mighty works? Who is this that is teaching such wise things? Who is this um, that that is is giving us all of this information about the kingdom of God? Unless you begin to ask the question, who, you can't really know anything about Jesus. You you won't have a right view about him. You will only uh, misunderstand him. If you only ask, how does Jesus do this, or what about that, or what about that, the question is, who? Eventually... They do ask the who question, but when they ask the who question, it's more rhetorical than actually seeking after the truth. Notice the next point in verse uh, three, they say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? They are not his sisters with us, and they took offense at him. So when you consider the, the scandal of the gospel, so the first question they ask is, is this not uh, the carpenter, right? It's, it's sort of disparaging. Now, being a carpenter wasn't a bad thing in the ancient Near East, but the way they ask it isn't, it, isn't he just the carpenter? Who does he think he is to come in here and do all this teaching? And then the other question they ask him, is this not the son of Mary? That definitely is meant to disparage people. Remember, it was a, it was a, it was a patriarchal or patronymic society, which meant you always carried your father's name, never your mother's name even if your father was dead. And as far as everyone knew, he was Jesus, the son of Joseph. Now, why would they say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Well, even during Jesus' lifetimes, there were rumors and gossip that went around that he was illegitimate, that he wasn't really Joseph's son, that that Mary was pregnant before they ever really got married, which we know is true. But but instead of seeking after the truth of that, which would have led them to the virgin birth and the nativity and all that, they basically want to just rather write Jesus off because they don't understand it. Is this not the the son of Mary? You know, he's illegitimate. So who's this illegitimate guy to come in here and tell us what to do? Who's this illegitimate uh, carpenter to come in and teach us about the, quote, things of God and about God's law? You see, these questions at some level are are simply rhetorical. And the question, also they mention his brothers and sisters. It's important to to note that of the brothers and sisters that are mentioned here, as far as we know, only one ever really trusted in Jesus. Only one ever looked at Jesus and followed him. Maybe two, but we know one for sure, James, the brother of Jesus. The other brothers didn't recognize him, didn't acknowledge him as who he said he was. And in fact, notice that says they were, when they asked these questions, it says they were scandalized by him or they took offense at him. Now, why would they take offense at Jesus? And I think the answer is this that even though they weren't asking the who question, Jesus would give them the who answer. You see, Jesus didn't just teach. Ethical teaching, and he didn't just teach different perspectives on the law. Jesus actually made claims when he taught. We're not given the teaching here that he was saying to them, but if it's consistent with all of the rest of the Gospels, Jesus was standing in front of his hometown, people who saw him grew up, and he was saying things like, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds upon me will never go hungry again. Whoever drinks from me will never be thirsty again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, right? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the the only way to God. Well, they were scandalized by that. They were scandalized because the gospel is always a scandal. Why is the gospel a scandal? Because Jesus in that moment was saying to them, what are you going to do with me? I know you saw me grow up, and you got to admit, I was a pretty good kid, right? (laughs) You saw me grow up, and I left town, and I came back, and now I am saying to you that I am very God of very God. I am the remedy to all your sins. I am actually the one who's bringing in the kingdom of God. What are you going to do with me? Now, they have a choice. Are we going to do something with him, or are we going to write him off? They write him off. They don't listen to him. They don't want to have anything to do with him in his own hometown. Why is the gospel such a scandal? Well, it's a scandal for one is because it calls you to trust in someone else, not yourself. You see, if you read the New Testament, the scandal of the gospel, among other things, is this, is that you and I are desperate and weak and helpless and hopeless in and of ourselves. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of being a good person. There's no amount of of keeping your nose clean. Nothing. None of that is good enough to to bear the scrutiny of God. That's a scandal because most of us want to believe that we have some input, that, that if we just be good, that God's going to be pleased with that. The scandal of the gospel says absolutely not that you bring nothing to the table. But it also says that someone else has brought everything to the table, that Jesus has brought everything to the table, that all of the the things that you were supposed to do right, Jesus did right. All of the things that you need to be pleasing to God, Jesus has them. And at the cross, he goes and he bears your sin, and he gives you his righteousness. And the gospel's a scandal because it takes a, a, a good bit of humility to say, I need that. I don't have what it takes. Jesus, will you forgive my sins? Jesus, will you apply the work of the cross to my heart? You could be scandalized. Most people are scandalized by that because we would rather work instead. But Jesus says, will you trust me? What are you going to do with me? It's easy to write something off if it's it's sort of third person and it's it's out there, but Jesus sort of brings the gospel right into his own hometown, right in front of the people and says, what are you going to do with me? And he does that with us too. What will you do with him? Will you trust him? Will you embrace this sort of scandal? I mean, part of the good news is that he was a carpenter and he was the son of Mary. The things that they were using to disparage him are the very things that qualified him. He was just like us except without sin. And he went to the cross that way. So you have, you have on, on one hand you have the questions of the crowd and you have the scandal of the gospel, but then you have the surprise of the savior. You have the, the fact that Jesus marvels at their response to him. Notice what Jesus says. His response to all this in verse four. It says, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse six, and he marveled because of their unbelief. So notice, first of all, verse four, it says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his household. That was a pretty common proverb in the the ancient Near East, among Semitic peoples, among Greeks, among the Romans. Everyone said that. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. Jesus does something different with it, though. Jesus tacks on two things. Jesus doesn't just say a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He says a prophet has no honor among his relatives and his own household. Jesus actually drills down. He says a prophet has no honor. You, You would think a prophet had honor. You'd think people would be proud of him. Look at my son, the prophet. That's my brother, the prophet, not with Jesus. He says, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. In my case, he has no honor among his relatives or even his own household. And Jesus is getting the same response from the people of his hometown and his relatives and his household as he got from the religious leaders. You see, we tend to look at the religious leaders in the New Testament and go, oh, those rotten Pharisees. You know, they just didn't get it. They were so self-righteous and they hated Jesus because they didn't want, you know, he told them it wasn't about works, but it was about trusting him. Well, guess what? People who aren't religious have the same exact problem. The people from his hometown had the same response to Jesus as the religious people did. Everyone, whether it was a religious people or whether it was even his own family, refused to say that that is the place in Jesus where I can find the grace of God. That's the place where I find forgiveness of sins. They, did, they didn't do it. Jesus said, so it's not just hometown. In my case, it's everybody. It takes something supernatural to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray for that before every sermon for a reason. And Jesus, what else do we see happens here? It says in verse 5, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. Now, if you've read through the New Testament, does that ever bother you? I mean, it's sort of an interesting verse because it seems to be that Jesus' ability to heal is dependent upon the willingness of the people in the crowd to believe. Is it? Maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. On one hand, it's a mystery. On the other hand, it's not. The reason Jesus did miracles in the New Testament was basically to attest to the fact that what he was saying was true, that he was the savior of the world, and all of his, his miracles bore witness to the message he was bringing, and that's the, that he is the only one who can save you from your sins. And if no one is willing to believe that, why was he do any mighty works? In other words, if everyone has already decided to write him off, then why would he stay there and just do what amounted to magic tricks? Jesus doesn't do things just to impress us. He does things for a reason. And yet in this case, Jesus marvels because of their unbelief. He doesn't marvel at their unbelief. He marvels because of it. That he sort of can't believe it. How much more do you need? How much more information do, do you need? How much more do you have to see before you will trust Jesus? Jesus in himself, in this case, is shocked and surprised. You know, it reminded me, and I'll, I'll finish with this. When I worked for Eli Lilly, um, part of my job was to go around and we would have lunches and things for doctors and psychiatrists and nurse practitioners, and our job, my partner and I, who's here actually, um, we would go out and we, we would have to persuade doctors, right? The, the, our medicine is the best medicine, and we we were always honest, and we just gave them all the evidence. And every now and then, doctors would do something that was utterly frustrating to me. I sold a medicine for schizophrenia, and it was both in, um, in testing and just anecdotally was the best medicine in the world. It was, and it was one of the biggest selling medicines in the world. And every now and then, someone would have a bad experience with it, with millions of people taking it, and one doctor would write one bad case report and say, this bad thing happened when my uh, patient took this medicine, and then the doctors that I worked with would stop using the medicine. And you'd ask them why, and they said, well, you see that case report. And after hearing that a few times, we had to get drastic. Had a big lunch with doctors and nurses, and I had to bust out Bigfoot on them. That's true. In other words, I started the lunch by asking how many of you believe in Bigfoot? How many people you think put their hands up? Doctors and nurses, psychiatrists, very established, esteemed one person, sort of sneaky. Didn't want everyone to know. And I just go around, why what why did why did you not say you didn't believe in Bigfoot? I won't believe it until I see it. How about you? Believe it until I see it. Won't believe it until I see it. Won't believe it. Everyone? Is that the reason? And I said, let me tell you this, there are tens of thousands of eyewitness accounts of people seeing Bigfoot. The Vikings, when they came over, they recorded sightings of incredibly tall, hairy men. Leif Erickson did in his journals. Does that help? Won't believe it until I see it. I said, are you sure about that? Last chance. And they said, yes. I said, let me ask you a question then. How come when you hear one report about my medicine, but you haven't seen the problem, you'll stop writing it? Crickets, 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 crickets. You see, at the end of the day, (laughs) the issue isn't whether, we don't tend to go off of evidence. Those doctors weren't going off of evidence they were going off of of the fact that they didn't want their patients to get upset with them if they heard the same thing in other words it's a heart issue whether it's medicine or whether it's the gospel if you're here today and you haven't trusted Jesus ever are you really not trusting Jesus because you're you're not persuaded by the evidence or you're not trusting Jesus because your heart hasn't been persuaded you're not willing to give it up you're not willing to submit to that think about that let me pray for us father I pray that as we um, uh, continue in this healing series of Jesus, we would also continue uh, to see that our faith makes a difference, that, uh, that somehow um, unbelief keeps Jesus from working in our lives oftentimes, at least the ways we want. I pray that you would uh, just continue to, to move us into a place where we are more trusting, more willing to engage him for who he is. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Amen.